All right, so we are going to finish um, the last section of Mark 15 this morning. We've been walking through the Gospel of Mark for a while now, and this morning is the last bit of chapter 15, and then next week, in alignment with Resurrection Sunday morning, we're going to look at the last eight verses of um, Mark's Gospel, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. All right, so if you're not there, go ahead and turn back to the text that Kevin read um, just a few minutes ago. And I want you to just think about something with me here as we get started. I bet there were probably some things that you saw or heard this past week that you couldn't wait to share with somebody. Or you couldn't help but share with someone. Okay? You thinking of some things? So maybe it was something that was really beautiful. You know, I mean, we can even just kind of elbow somebody that's close and point out the sunset. It could be a powerful song, a beautiful song. Like I heard um, this song of this one Middle Eastern woman singing. It was a video that, um, you know, I got this email, link in it, followed it. I was like, whoa. Um, it was beautiful. Shared it with the family yesterday. Maybe it was something creative or funny or something interesting. I mean, why do videos go viral? Because we share what we see in here. So for instance, have you ever heard of Mark Rober? Anybody? Anybody? So he worked for NASA. Oh, there's a lot of hands. Okay. So he was a NASA engineer for a while, and, and now he makes YouTube videos, but about engineering. And he does all kinds of creative, cool stuff, like getting vengeance on the package thieves. So he created this glitter bomb Okay, it looked just like a package, like probably some electronics, because that's pretty valuable, and somebody might want to lift that from your porch. And so this little box was fitted with multiple cell phones and cameras so that he could watch these thieves take this bomb, take the bait, and inside this thing, at the right moment, it would just kind of explode, and it was a glitter bomb and a stink bomb, and it was just, yeah. And then there was, you know, GPS tracking, and he could go pick it up in the dumpster or out, you know, in the parking lot when the person just tossed it out the, the window. So um, I'm really hoping that the most significant takeaway from this message is not everybody following up to watch Mark Rober videos, especially not right now, okay? Though I'm sure you'll enjoy that. I mean, we do this with recipes. We do it with a favorite restaurant, favorite movie, TV show, etc. Maybe there's an amazing athletic feat that you see. Anybody heard of Mac McClung? Come on, a couple people. So he plays now for the Blue Coats. It's the G League team for the 76ers, you know, professional basketball team. Um, and crazy enough, the dunk contest was, I don't know, two months ago, a month and a half ago, the NBA dunk contest, and he got activated, brought up to the NBA for like two weeks. And he's this, he's six foot two. Does not look like he would win a dunk contest. And he came out of nowhere and did some crazy silly stuff and won the dunk contest. And you can go watch him play down at the Chase Center, the field house, um, which we did like last Saturday night. Um, so I've, told people about watching the dunk contest because I saw it and I couldn't believe it and I shared it. So, what was it for you? Something that you couldn't help but share 
because you had seen something, you'd heard something. It's kind of in our wiring, isn't it? Okay, keep that in mind. And now we're going to look at Mark 15. We'll circle back to that at the end, all right? So last week, just a little bit of context. If you look at 1525, the focus, like what Mark is really zeroing in on, is the shame of the cross, the humiliation of the cross that Jesus willingly endured for us. So look at verse 25. It was the third hour when Jesus was crucified, and then look at all this shame. The inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. That was mocking. Yeah, some king hanging on a cross, defeated, imposter Messiah. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on his right, one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, oh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Also, the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he can't save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And then those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So even those robbers on the left and the right are reviling Jesus. So shame, humiliation. Now, though, as we shift to verses 33 to 47, which is our section for this morning, the focus shifts away from shame to something else, okay? So we'll pay attention and see what Mark shifts our attention to as we walk through this. So all goes dark now. Point number one, what we see. So we're going to go through this passage and we're going to see some things, we're going to hear some things, we're going to see some things, we're going to hear some things, and then we're going to say, what do we do? Okay? Five points. That's how it goes. What we see, what we hear, what we see, what we hear, what should we do? So first point, what we see, darkness. Look at verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. They marked time by the sixth hour, the ninth hour, starting at 6 a.m. So this is noon to three. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, the time when it's supposed to be brightest. When the sun is at its apex, it's pitch dark. So some have tried to explain this away, you know, some kind of natural phenomenon, like, well, maybe it was a solar eclipse. Okay, well, solar eclipses don't last that long. They take a little while coming in and a little while going out, but they're only a few minutes long. And the coming in and going out are not total darkness. Not only that, you can't have a solar eclipse at a full moon. Passover took place at a full moon. Some have proposed, perhaps it was a Scirocco. I'm not talking about that Volkswagen, you know, model that they had back in the 80s. Anybody remember that? Okay. Um, crazy, a Scirocco is a crazy Middle Eastern wind dust storm thing that can obscure the sun for an extended period of time. This is also highly unlikely because it was the wet season of spring. That's when Passover takes place. It's not the time for Scirocco's. This is supernatural darkness. So the question is, what does it mean? Well, what does darkness mean in the Bible? It oftentimes is used in a metaphorical sense to refer to things that are like the opposite of light. That's obvious. Light is associated with truth. 
with life and vitality, darkness with falsehood and deceit and spiritual death. Light is God's domain. Darkness is the devil's domain. But that's just too general here, okay? What does this darkness mean? Well, can you think of a place in the Bible where darkness fell supernaturally? Can you think of any instances? How about at the Exodus? The ninth plague was total darkness, pitch darkness. Okay? Terrible, supernatural darkness. And what did it mean? It meant that God was about to deliver his people, but the darkness meant that judgment was falling on the Egyptians. There was light in Goshen. We should also note that the ninth plague of darkness fell right before the Passover lamb was slaughtered and the death of the firstborn for the Egyptians. Judgment fell on the Egyptians and their firstborn died. Deliverance came to the Israelites because the Passover lamb died as a substitute. Hmm. This all sounds kind of familiar. So the plague of darkness preceded the first Passover. This darkness precedes the death of the Lamb of God, sacrificed to take away the sins of the world. So the darkness that fell in the middle of the day, noon to three, was indicative of the judgment that was falling on Jesus. But that's not all. There's also another very specific association that should be called to mind So look at Amos chapter 8, verse 9. And on that day, declares the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only sun and the end of it like a bitter day. That is referring to the day of the Lord like the decisive day when Yahweh shows up and sets the world to rights. So not just the plague of darkness, though that's true, the judgment connotations, but the day of the Lord connotations. So the Jews thought that there was one final day of the Lord that awaited, like a decisive, ultimate, final day of the Lord. When that day came, all the enemies would be judged and defeated, And God's people will be delivered and established as the kingdom of God forever. What they don't realize is that they don't actually want the day of the Lord to come. Because if you're unrighteous, unholy, and sinful, that's a dark day for you. So in Joel chapter 2, It says this, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness. So the day of the Lord is a day of judgment. It's a day of darkness, just like outer darkness is the place of punishment, right? Eternal separation from God. But that darkness fell on Jesus. That judgment fell on Jesus 
that we might be rescued from the domain of darkness. So as Jesus hangs on the cross and is crucified, the first thing, we see the darkness of divine judgment fall. And in some crazy way, this future day of the Lord, when God will set everything to rights and judge his enemies and rescue his people fully and finally forever, somehow that's broken into time and history and it's happening. That judgment is falling on Jesus. So first we see the darkness of divine judgment fall. Second point, then we hear something. We hear him cry out. We hear what's often called the cry of dereliction. Okay, point number two, the cry of dereliction. It's not a word we use very much. Um, If someone is derelict in their duties, they've abandoned their responsibilities, right? So the cry of dereliction means it's a cry of abandonment, a cry of forsakenness. So look at verse 34. At the ninth hour, it's three o'clock, roughly, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. So, so Elijah sounds similar to Eli, Eloi, okay? Which is why they said, oh, he's calling Elijah. And in Judaism at the time, there was a thought that, you know, Elijah didn't die, he was just kind of carried away, so he's gonna come and, you know, rescue the righteous sufferer and whatever. Um, so that's what's going on here, but he's actually, in Aramaic, quoting from Psalm 22, referencing Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we first see the supernatural darkness. It's a cosmic testimony to the judgment that was falling on Jesus. And then we hear him cry out with the words of Psalm 22. And this cry of dereliction actually explains what the darkness means. Or you could flip it the other way and say that the darkness is like a visual aid to help us understand what we hear in Jesus' cry from the cross. This, this is the fulfillment of what caused Jesus to shudder in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, he was looking into the cup of God's holy wrath and he shuddered. Like, if there's any other way, cause this, pass, this cup to pass from me, but not my will, yours be done. So what is it that's happening in these three hours of darkness as Jesus hung on the cross? Well, again, we have to just fit this into the storyline of the whole Bible. Sin separates us from God. In the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So all of our life, physical, spiritual, and, and if you just rebel against God, it's like being cut off like a branch from the trunk of the tree. The thing doesn't disintegrate on the ground, but it's no longer going to bear any fruit. It's not alive anymore. So cut off from the source of life. Isaiah 59, 2, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So sin is us forsaking this good, loving God who made us and knows what's best for us, thinking we know better, and we go after something else in his place. We have all forsaken God. We've all turned our backs on him. We've all traded the treasure of his glory for trinkets, for fool's gold. Or in the words of Jeremiah 2, 13, we've spurned the fountain of living waters and sought to 
slake our spiritual thirst at the broken cisterns of this world. They, they can't hold water. They can't satisfy our thirst. Or we've, you could say we've been unfaithful to the perfect lover, like spiritual adulterers. We deserve to be forsaken for all of our forsaking God. I mean, sin makes us guilty, deserving of judgment. God's righteous, just response is to forsake us, to judge our kind of high-handed dishonor and, and rebellion with righteous condemnation. If the day of the Lord comes, we're in trouble. We got no appeal. We're guilty. Our debt is massive and infinite. There's no way we could pay it. Our sins have separated us from God. Eternal separation from God. From all that's good and true and beautiful and blessed. And there's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. So put points one and two together. If the darkness symbolizes judgment, I guess I've already made it clear, but let's just think it through. Who's God judging? If it's the day of the Lord, how does this fit into God's plan of judgment and deliverance? Why is the perfect son of God being forsaken? This is at the heart of the gospel. This great exchange. We deserve to die on that cross and be forsaken and abandoned. And he was in our place. So 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he, God the Father, made him, God the Son, to be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him... When you trust in him, you, you take refuge in him. When you are in him, you become the righteousness of God. Or Galatians 3.13, God redeemed us, or I'm sorry, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So that in Christ, the blessing, instead of the curse, we deserve the curse, we get the blessing instead. He was cursed so that we could be blessed. The blessing of Abraham might come to the nations so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So this is what's happening in the dark in those three hours. The one who only knew perfect, like we can't even begin to get our minds around this. The perfect, ah, we don't have words for the kind of intimacy and oneness and love that the Father and the Son have shared for all eternity. This is perfect eternal fellowship, and it is torn apart. Like, this is the most horrible thing that could happen to Jesus. The Son of God cut off, like in some very real and cosmic, cosmically horrific sense, from the Father during these hours of darkness. How can that even happen? What is the nature of that transaction? This is like beyond our mind's ability to comprehend. This is hell. Jesus was enduring, absorbing hell for every, like the fury of God's wrath, not just for one person, but for everyone who would ever believe. What is that transaction like? 
I mean, what is hell? Hell is like unquenchable fire. This is the raging inferno of God's wrath. Completely righteous. He's not, he's not just like hair trigger temper and, you know, ooh, he's a, this is his righteous opposition to evil. Hell is also spoken of like outer darkness, being cut off from all light and life and vitality and hope, utter destruction, utter disintegration, utter just despair and hopelessness, infinitely worse than the physical suffering of the crucifixion. Jesus experienced all of that, bore all of that, absorbed all of that, drank that cup all the way down to the dregs, and then said, and this is going to be what we're going to consider Friday night, it is finished. All of that, that forsakenness was why? That you and me would never be forsaken. In Psalm 22, David was feeling forsaken. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he was not forsaken. Jesus is the only one who can actually, literally say these words. He's the only one who ever was forsaken by God. And all of it so that we might never be forsaken. So that the promise of Hebrews 13.5 would be ours. He himself has said, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Jesus really was forsaken, that we will never be forsaken. You may feel forsaken, but you are not. If you are in Christ, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And he's working everything together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So we don't always know the meaning of our suffering, but we can know what it doesn't mean. Our suffering doesn't mean that God doesn't care. It doesn't mean that he's against us. You cannot conclude, if you are a Christian, you cannot conclude that God doesn't love you or doesn't care or that he's abandoned you or that he's forsaken you. So just... I found these words helpful. Um, read them a long time ago, but they were brought back to mind. J.D. Greer wrote a book called Jesus Continued, and he says this, so when we feel abandoned, that is all it is, a feeling, a lying, deceptive feeling. It has to be. Jesus faced the full measure of our aloneness in our place and put it away forever. By his death, he reconciled us to God so that we can know he will never leave us or forsake us. So what do you do when you feel alone or forsaken or abandoned? He says, walk by faith, not by sight. You must re-believe the gospel, that God has removed the full extent of the curse, all that could ever separate you from him, and has given you Christ's complete righteousness in its place. You must re-believe that in his finished work, you couldn't be closer to him than you are right now, regardless of how you feel. And you must reclaim the promises of God, almost all of which are made to us for times in which God appears distant. Like, that's especially when those promises and therefore us all the time. What you feel is not usually a good indicator of what really is. And then he talks about how 
Um, he's heard of people who survive getting overrun by a snow avalanche, um, but sometimes they actually lose their bearings and they dig the wrong direction to get out, right? This happens to us in our time of aloneness. We feel like we are not close, not close to God, but that feeling is not telling us the truth. God's word tells us what reality is, not our emotions. Emotions come out of our belief system. They should not be the basis for it. Feelings should be reoriented around God's reality, not our perception of reality around feelings. And the best presentation of reality is found in God's word. Therefore, we must believe our way into our feelings not feel our way into our beliefs. Can I just insert another helpful quote that I've used before in the past? Um, I've come back to it over and over again. Eric Tonnes, a guy, um, nah, anyway, he teaches out in California. Um, there's this idea, he writes, that to live out of conformity with how I feel is hypocrisy. But that's a wrong definition of hypocrisy. To live out of conformity with what I believe is hypocrisy. To live in conformity with what I believe in spite of what I feel isn't hypocrisy, it's integrity. That's called the fight of faith. That's not faking it till you make it. That's the fight of faith. Everybody tracking? Okay. So feelings should be reoriented around God's reality, not our perception of reality around feelings, and the best presentation of reality is found in God's word. Therefore, we must believe our way into our feelings, not feel our way into our beliefs. Many Christians go through long seasons in which they feel disconnected from God, doubting whether or not they are even saved. We must train our feelings to follow faith in God's word. Feeling arises from faith, and faith is built upon fact. When we reverse that order, allowing feelings to determine faith and fact for us, spiritual disaster occurs. The gospel declares to us that God has made himself close to us in Christ, holding us even tighter than a mother holds a newborn child, Isaiah 49, 15. When our feelings tell us that is not true, we must defy those feelings with faith in God's promise. So we see supernatural darkness judgment falling on Jesus so that pardon and justification and no condemnation can fall on us. And we hear the cry of dereliction, Jesus truly forsaken so that we who trust in him will never be forsaken. There's more to see in here. Look at point three, what we see. We see this curtain. Look at verses 37 and 38. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So I actually always thought that this was like for sure the veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies. Okay, and that's certainly possible. It's not the only possibility. <laughs> um, so I just need to say this to be honest with the text. This word for veil was used of that veil, but there's also a veil at the entrance to the temple, like from the outer courts to the holy place. And they're both like massive. I think it was like, uh, I should have written it down. Something like 50 cubits? Cubit was 18 inches. Hello. How tall is the ceiling, Tom? 40 feet? Oh. So don't trust my gauge. Um, 26 feet times three. That's how big the curtain was. The one inside was probably a little bit smaller. Shorter. Okay, this is like thick, crazy curtain torn from top to bottom 
Okay, same word was used to refer to both of those veils. Um, so it could be that the veil that hung before the entrance to Herod's temple is the one in view here, and it was visible from the forecourts. Like everybody could have seen this happen, which, okay, be more publicly visible. I mean, only the priest would see the one inside, right? So people would have just had to hear about it. Some Jewish Christian traditions actually speak of a remarkable thing that happened at the entrance to the temple. Early church fathers commonly interpreted it as a sign of the destruction of the temple. Remember, if you've been with us, chapters 13, 14, why did Jesus even get, um, like what was one of the accusations when he's on trial before the, the priest? He said, destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. So there's this Jesus is going to replace the temple thing going on. So it would make sense. If so, if that's the, the veil you know, being referred to, it means that the, the death of Jesus overthrows and replaces the sacrificial system in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant structure. Okay? Like he is the new and better temple. He is where we can meet with God and where sin can be atoned for. Like in that sense, he's he's replacing the whole thing. If it's the inner veil, separating the holy place from the holy of holies, then it means kind of what's being teased out and explained in Hebrews, particularly in chapters 9 and 10. Just a couple quick quotes here. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Therefore, brothers, look at Hebrews 10, 19. Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, because his flesh was torn just like that curtain was torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We can actually approach the very presence of God now because of the blood of Jesus. We don't need a... He is the mediating high priest. We don't need a high priest to go in once a year for the sacrifice of atonement. Access is torn wide open, and we can come with confidence before the throne of grace. We no longer need to fear judgment. So ultimately, they're both true, right? (laughs) I'm not sure which one is in focus here, but full atonement has been made. We now have full access, and we can confidently approach God's throne and receive his mercy and grace because Jesus is the new and better temple. He is how we meet with God. And that veil was torn, not from the bottom up, but from the top down. We can't open the way by our own efforts or penance or efforts at atoning for our own sins, climbing any ladder to the heavens. It's gotta come from the top down. God alone can save. So we've seen the darkness. We've heard the cry of dereliction. We've seen the veil torn in two. There's one more thing to hear. Point number four, the confession. Look at verse 39. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. So centurion, he's like, dude's in charge. He's in charge of the execution. He had seen many people die and many of them at his own hand. Something about the way that Jesus died profoundly affected him. And we hear 
his confession. He is the first person in the Gospel of Mark to confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And it was Jesus' suffering and death that elicited that response. A crucified Messiah to a Jew or a crucified Son of the Gods to a Gentile was a laughable thought. It couldn't happen. So this is a 180, like crazy turn of events for this guy to confess this. This centurion, as a faithful son of Rome, would have paid homage faithfully to the Roman Caesar as the son of the divine Augustus at the time. And yet here he confesses that Jesus is the son of God. So this man only finally had his eyes open to who Jesus was, identity, when he saw how he died. There is great significance in this confession at the end of Mark's gospel. In fact, there's a sense in which it's the climactic moment, like the climactic confession in the book, and it creates a bookend. Did you ever notice this? Look back at chapter one of Mark's gospel. Flip back there, first verse. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Then skip down to 1-9. I told you that the centurion is the first human being that confesses that Jesus is the Son. Well, remember the baptism of Jesus? He's baptized, baptized by John in the Jordan. When he came up out of the water, this is Mark 1-10, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven you are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. So look at the bookends, folks. In chapter one, the heavens are torn open and God the Father declares that Jesus is beloved son. In chapter 15, the temple veil is torn from top to bottom and the centurion declares that Jesus is the son of God. So his death leads to this confession by the centurion. So we still need to ask, so what? That's just like a curious, oh, oh, that's interesting. Thanks for pointing that out. But what's the point? Well, the temple was the place where God met with his people, right? It's the place of his special presence. It's the place where atonement was made for the sins of the people so God could dwell with his people. It's supposed to be a house of prayer, right? Not just for the Jews, but for the nations. Remember, Jesus had to cleanse the temple because they turned it into a den of thieves. And listen, the blood of bulls and goats don't ultimately take away sin, they're all part of a provisional system, Old Covenant. In Jesus' death, he's the true and better temple. He's Emmanuel, God with us, God dwelling with us, so that we can dwell with God now and forever. And not just the Jews. Like, he died in our place to make full, final atonement for our sins. We don't need a temple anymore. We have Jesus. He opened the way into the very presence of God. We can come with confidence and all of this mercy, all of this grace is not just for the Jews, it's for all the nations. So the confession of this centurion is a living, audible testimony, not only to Jesus' identity, but also his mission. Oh, we've been calling this series the whole along, King and Cross. The identity of Jesus and the mission of Jesus. The scope of his redemptive reach is being pointed to here. He is the Son of God, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, and the King of Kings, and 
He came to die and open the way for redemption to come to people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. Mark 8, or I'm sorry, Mark 10, 45, being fulfilled, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So this is like a prelude to the new song in Revelation 5, 9. Worthy are you, for you were slain, O Lamb of God, and by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Here's this enemy of God that had a hand in putting him to death and tacking him on that tree, and now he's confessing that he's the Son of God. So it's a prelude, like it's a pointer to the scope of the gospel, the mission and work of Jesus. So after all we've seen and heard, what do we do? Well, there's some hints in verses 40 to 47. We'll kind of go through this quickly. So there were some women, look at verse 40, looking on from a distance among them, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he, he was in Galilee, they followed him, ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have died already. You know, usually people kind of hang on for a few days. Um, and so he got permission from Pilate, and he, he buys a shroud, takes Jesus down, wraps him in the shroud, lays him in the tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb, which is possible for one person because they would have a little track and roll it down. It'd be much more difficult. You need multiple men to roll it back up in case you're wondering about some of those details. And then Mary Magdalene, Mary the, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid, which sets us up for the next chapter, where they go to the tomb the next morning. Or, I'm sorry, on Sunday morning. So why the mention of the women and Joseph of Arimathea? It seems these mentions are intended to commend them as faithful disciples. Marcus had a discipleship focus throughout the gospel, and given that pattern, it's likely that the purpose of these verses, as well as kind of setting up the fact that the women saw where Jesus was buried and they're going to go to that tomb on Sunday morning, it's showing a couple things. One, these women showed courage to identify with Jesus at risk to themselves. They are honored here, okay, which is very countercultural at that time. And it's a beautiful thing. Joseph of Arimathea is also honored here. He did this at great risk to himself. What does it look like to be a faithful disciple of this suffering Savior? So this was a courageous act on Joseph's part to identify with Jesus who had just been charged and killed because of treason, charged with treason and killed. That's not going to put you in the good graces of the Roman leaders. To identify with Jesus who had been charged with blasphemy by his own Sanhedrin leaders would jeopardize his standing with those leaders. He was a respected leader, at least until now. So there's a hint of instruction and discipleship here. It's the courageous identification of these women and this man. And it's an echo, isn't it, of the pivot point of Mark's gospel. Remember back to chapter 8? Calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said to them, after he had said, Yes, I'm the Messiah, but this is what it means. 
I'm going to suffer and die. And if you're going to follow me, it's also going to mean suffering. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses, risks, gives up his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and simple generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So Mark 8, discipleship is beginning to reverberate even before the resurrection. The women were there courageously. Joseph takes courage. It all flows from what we see and hear. And so let's go full circle. You and I, we are witnesses. We're wired to be witnesses in two senses, both to behold things and to hear things, cool videos and, you know, great recipes and all that stuff. And then we're also wired to be witnesses, to share what we've seen and heard. So it really matters what you fix your attention on, what you fix your eyes on, what you tune your ears to. We often fix, and I'm guilty and convicted, we often fix our eyes and ears on such trivial things, don't we? And what do we talk about? What do we share with people? Trivial things. Remember in Acts 3, Peter and John? Oh, by the way, Peter, well, John was there, but like the disciples had scattered. So there's like grace for the people who have, you know, chickened out and run away. So honoring the women and Joseph, but eventually the disciples, by God's grace, go from chickens to bold, which is kind of the closing, you know, illustration here from Acts 3. Peter and John, they're going up to the temple to pray. There's this man lame from birth. He's now over 40 years old. He's begging alms at the gate. Peter says, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. The guy gets up, and he starts walking, and then he enters the temple like the, you know, Sunday school song goes, walking and leaping and praising God. Everybody's amazed. The crowd gathers. Peter preaches the gospel to them boldly, calls them to repent and trust in Jesus as their Messiah. The Jewish leaders come on the scene, and they're really ticked off because, Je- because these you know, apostles are teaching, proclaiming Jesus in his name, the resurrection from the dead. They arrest them. They interrogate them. What does Peter do? He takes the opportunity to preach the gospel again. Acts 4.9. If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man... By what means this man has been healed? Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, take some courage to say it that way, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They confer with one another. What are we going to do with these guys? And they think, okay, you know, because everybody saw this, we can't come down on them too hard. But just so this won't spread any further, let's warn them not to speak anymore in this name. 
So they call John and Peter in, charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And then Acts 4.19, Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we've seen and heard. Help us, Lord. Help us see. Help us hear. So that we can't help but speak of what we've seen and heard. Let's pray. Forgive me, forgive us for our petty idolatry and dullness. So Lord, where we need to be convicted and we need to repent, lead us through that. But Lord, also show us again and help us hear the glory, see the glory, hear the the beautiful good news of the gospel so that it thrills our souls and we can't help but speak of it, of what we've seen and heard. Please pour out your grace on us, Lord. We need it. In Jesus' name, amen.